From digital horsemanship, this is Finding the Field, bringing you stories and insights from today's most inspiring horsemen and women. That's the thing that's cool about this is that none of them are alike, so we get to prepare them differently. sitting here with Jordan Larson of Larson Performance Horses. He was the youngest $1 million NRHA rider and then quickly caught up to $2 million rider. He's a world champion, a derby champion, a fraternity champion. If you've heard of it, he's probably won it. He's also a father and a husband. Thank you for being here, Jordan. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. Tell us a little bit how you got started. My family has kind of always been into horses a little bit. My dad was a horseshoer. And my mom and dad both kind of raised halter horses when I was a kid. So I was around it a little bit. And, you know, I ever since I was big enough to walk, I've been riding a horse. I was the third child in my family. So I was kind of, you know, my older siblings got the horses pushed on them. And with me, they didn't really push it at all. And I was the one that wanted to do it. So I had to kind of fight for it a little bit. So did you start working with halter horses as a kid? Yeah, well, they they did that. I never really, it wasn't really my thing. I By the time I was 10, I was wanting to actually do the cutting. You know, cattle were tough to get, so we ended up with doing reining, and then I fell in love with reining, and just kind of the rest has been history. So when did you first get on a reiner? Uh, I think after my 10th birthday, my parents got me a lesson with a guy named Hugh Martin in California. We lived in Northern California. And he had a couple broke horses and I got to ride one and loved, you know, what how it felt and cool it was. And then I got me the videos of the fraternity finals from that year. And from then on, you know, that was my, my dream was to win the rain fraternity. So you watched those fraternity runs for the first time. What were you thinking? I was just in awe of, you know, just how amazing the horses were and the excitement of it. You know, I think the first video I got was... The 1992 fraternity when Boomernick won, you know, it was a pretty exciting run. And actually, I think maybe it was 91. But anyway, I have, I had all those finals videos from the last 25 years. So so then you decided, okay, this is what I'm going to do. When did you decide to do it professionally? I mean, I guess I always wanted to be a horse trainer since I could, you know, since I could talk. I was around it a little bit. And to be honest, I had no idea really what it entailed, but I thought it looked cool. And I wanted to have fancy spurs and a nice hat you know and just go around and ride horses for a living so at the time when I was a little kid that's all I understood about it but I loved competition and I love to to be around the horses was there a horse as a kid that shaped you well yeah like my family didn't have a lot of money so they bought a mare that was previously shown in the cow horse a little bit you know she was supposed to be something that was trained and she turned out to not be that great but we raised a baby out of her and um, I ended up getting help training that one. And that was kind of the first horse I ever really, you know, started and trained myself when I was about 14. And, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, but I ended up winning some reinings on her. And so it kind of started from there. But not not expensive horses like $5,000 horses, just whatever we could have. You know, my parents did what they could. They, they sacrificed a lot for me, but that was what we could afford. So that's what we got. Yeah, that first horse... You said you made a lot of mistakes on her. What was a big lesson that you learned? Well, I just had, I really had no idea what I was doing. My family moved a couple times in the meantime, and I ended up living in Missouri on my grandparents. And for my 14th birthday, I got a lesson with a guy named Kenny Eppers. And at the time, I didn't know who he was because um, he wasn't showing as much. And he had just moved to Missouri as well to work out of Von Zimmerman's place. 
So anyway, I got a lesson with him and he really shaped my future a lot. And I got lessons like every two weeks, every, you know, once a month, every two weeks during that time. And he, and he was a huge influence on me and he was kind of the person that turned me toward, you know, legitimate reigning, I guess. What was something specific that he taught you? He showed me things I had no idea about as far as the basics of reigning, which were the finer points of guiding. You know, there was a lot more to it than just running, stopping and spinning and running fast circles. You know, there's the guiding and teaching a horse how to function properly and respond correctly to me. Just becoming a horseman, you know, I had no idea. So it was pretty cool. When I talk to a lot of other trainers, they just talk so positively about how amazing your feel is. Do you think that's where that started? Yeah, probably. I think so. I mean, I don't feel like I came by it naturally, but it's something that I've had to work at. And yes, there's things that I have naturally, but I've definitely had to work at it. Who was the next trainer you went and worked for? Well, yeah. So on and off, I worked with Kenny and ironically, he would take me to the fraternity to, to clean his stalls for him. And I clean stalls in the same place that my stalls are now at the Rain Fraternity. It's been since remodeled, but the exact same aisle, exact same place is where my stalls are at the Fraternity. So 96, 97 Fraternity, I was a stall cleaner and I got to walk horses around and I was 15 and 16 at the time. And so it was just a huge opportunity for me and, and to get to see raining, you know, at its finest, basically at the best horse show in the world. He did a lot for me in that respect, but one thing that people don't, you know, realize is you know, I was able to ride very well at the time, and I did not get to sit on a horse. I got to walk a horse maybe if I was lucky, you know, and I was cleaning stalls and doing that, but I was just thrilled to be there. Anyway, later on, when I was 17, I ended up going to work for Doug Milhon. What was it like working for Doug? It was really good. You know, he gave what he gave me was the opportunity to ride young horses and uh, he tried you know to teach me his program but he also kind of let me learn a little bit along the way just to experience you know he gave me a great opportunity to ride young horses probably more opportunity than I really was ready for I just looking back it was it was very nice of him to give me the young horses that he gave me to ride and I got to show at the fraternity and stuff so it was it was a great opportunity it was cool what do you think something that that Doug taught you that's still in your program today Oh, I think that, you know, his, he had really great, he had great feel on a horse and he was very patient. And uh, at the time I was definitely not patient at all. You know, I had amb great ambitions of winning the fraternity and, you know, I had a lot to learn. So, and they, they put up with me a lot. Just, he was, he was very patient with me. So he let you take a horse to the fraternity. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like? It was awesome. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. Yeah. I, a guy named Jim Bloomer, who's still in the business, owned the horse at the time, and I was kind of new at Doug's, and she was basically a third-string horse. She she wasn't a great stopper, but she could really spin. And I ended up marking a 214.5 in the first go and thought I was going to make the finals. <laughs> and then in the second go, I missed the marker. Anyway, it was, it was an awesome opportunity. She was a nice horse. I still have a picture of her somewhere. So that first fraternity, you're walking into the show pen. What are you feeling? I was overwhelmed, but I was more confident at that time, just out of ignorance. I think I didn't know how big is, you know, opportunities that I was enjoying at the time. You know, I just enjoyed it. It was overwhelming, but yet I, you know, in my ignorance, I thought I was ready. <laughs> so your ignorance kind of helped you out in that first yeah, one. That's right. Yeah. Just being young, dumb. So then that second go, you missed your marker. Yeah. What was kind of your, your takeaway from that show after that experience? 
you know, I just realized that I was a long ways, a lot further away than I thought I was. And just, you know, I was riding a horse that somebody else had trained, that Andy had trained. Mm -hmm. And so I got to reap the benefits of his hard work. Yes, I probably, you know, put a little bit of of my twist on it and it helped her be successful and we ended up selling her. But ultimately, you know, I had a lot to learn. So from there, you eventually worked for Darren Stancic. I did, yeah, I did. I made some bad choices at Doug's and he had to let me go, which was probably a really good thing for me. It just kind of woke me up a little bit, but um, Darren was a person that I had known from. I worked a summer for him when I was, when Chocolate Chickalina was a three-year-old, so it has been a while ago, maybe 96, I think, somewhere in there. I worked a summer for him, so he hired me and uh, gave me an opportunity to come up there and work, and he just taught me a lot about the West Coast style of training that, you know, I grew up kind of idolizing people like Avila and Todd Bergen and John Slack and those guys and, and Darren as well. And he was he was real successful and showing a lot in the open at the time too. How would you describe that West Coast style? You know, you have the East Coast and the West Coast. And the West Coast is way more of a, the body control. The horses are um, soft. They're, you know, they're collected more. They're, they're, they're not um, allowed to, I guess, it's just, it's just a different type of training. It's a training that it takes a lot longer to teach them how to do things correctly. It's a slow process, but it's a process that I think ultimately you have a really, really well-trained horse at the end. They know how to, to do everything you could ask them to do and they can move and be soft and, and do it. And it's it, the, the process takes so long because it's detailed. So, you know, he gave me a really clear understanding of how to do that, which was good. Can you think of any horses during your time there that, that stood out to you? Well, yeah, I mean, Chaco Chicolina, I mean, he was, he actually was a funny horse because he did not fit into the West Coast style at all. He was a very stiff horse by nature, but I watched him basically adapt to the horse, not making the horse adapt to him. You know, it was cool. That horse was really, really broke and he could do things that were just unreal. So getting to see him, he was a big time, big time, big time horse and won everything you know pretty much everywhere we went he won so it was you know he was a neat horse and then he also had another horse called bl whiz kid who i got to ride quite a bit he was a little bit behind and i felt like he was a really great horse but i didn't know how good or not good he ended up going and on and winning a lot with um Dwayne latimer and dale bennett down here in texas so it was kind of neat to be able to have a little bit of a part in that and get to that was a great horse that I got to to spend time on and I had no idea how great he was at the time you know it was neat to get to say okay that that's a good horse did you show during your time with Dan? a little bit yeah just a little bit you know I wasn't really at the you know level training wise at that time that he was going to let me show too much but you know I feel like it was a it was just a really good opportunity to learn how to get a horse broke I think more than anything and then you went and worked for Pete Kyle. Uh-huh. Pete, what Pete did was he took me, I, I somehow along the line lost my confidence in it, my ability to show. And so when I got to Pete's, he had way too many horses and not enough help. So it was a perfect place for me because, um, you know, I was able to get tons of experience, go to lots of horse shows. I got to ride good horses, bad horses. They were breeders. And um, so there was lots of, of horses by their studs. Plus there was, uh, he had a really good customer named Kimberly who had lots and lots of really good broke horses that she wanted to show, which enabled me the opportunity to, 
to go show school, you know, take them to horse shows and do mm-hmm. that stuff, which just got so many miles there. So you said when you went to Pete Kyle's that you had kind of lost your confidence in mm-hmm. showing. It's hard to imagine, you know, watching you you show now. What do you think damaged your confidence? Partly I was I wanted it really bad, but I also, you know, you know, I just I don't I'm not hundred percent sure. You know, there was I had I showed one or two at Darren's that, that I ended up not doing very good on and they probably just weren't that great of horses, but I'll never forget the first time I showed Amber Oak, I ran to my first stop with my eyes closed because I didn't think she was going to stop. And I said, whoa, and she just drug her butt. And um, so anyway, from there on, Pete was really, really awesome when I came out of the show pen. It was always positive. There was no negatives when he came out of the show pen. He was not going to criticize me. And at the time, that's exactly what I needed. I needed somebody that told me, you know, this is what you could do better. But he was super nice. I mean, he was just always, always positive, you know. And so my confidence grew with that. And he get, he trusted me a lot, too. He gave me great opportunities. And he, I drove all over the countryside for him. At the time, he was showing lots. I mean, just showing everywhere. And we went from all the way from Arizona to New Jersey. Pete was a great showman. He could show a horse and it could be doing things he wasn't really happy with and he would never let the judges know and that was one thing i really took from him was that his demeanor in the show pen and his basically his way of going about it never changed even when it was not going well and i learned that i'll always believe the best always hope for the best when i walk in that show pen that's how he is you know and that's that's pete pete's a positive person and he portrays that in a show pen. I mean, and if it doesn't go well, it wasn't the end of the world. <laughs> I mean, he just always found a positive spin on it. That was pretty cool. What about getting ready to show? How do you prepare? I'm a big fan of, I know my pattern. That's a big thing. I harass the people that work for me to know their patterns if they know they're gonna go show. And I know that horse's strengths and weaknesses in that pattern. And I try to visualize the parts that I think are going to go well. And I, I try to visualize how the sticky parts, wherever I think there might be a little bit of an issue, how I'm going to go through there. If I have a horse that's hard to change leads one direction, what do I need to do to make sure that that horse is in the best position possible to change leads before showing and during showing? And so I try to come up with a plan like that. And I have things that I need to work on. And I tell myself, okay, this in this part of the pattern, I've got to do this. You know, I've got to look for that center. You know, all the, it's all the little things. It's all, it's all the little things. Waiting in the rollback, looking where you're going, finding your spot, running down the pin. You know, I'm going through all those little basic things. When are you thinking about them? How far in advance? You know, my mind starts working on it when I'm riding that horse, even a month out. Some of the fraternity horses, the pattern where we have to run up and down the middle and, and do the stops and rollbacks, I'm thinking about how that horse is going to be to do that. And and so I start thinking about it early in the year. But as we get closer, I know better how to prepare that horse. That's the thing that's cool about this is that none of them are alike, so we get to mm-hmm. prepare them differently. Do you get nervous? Oh, yeah. Yes, I do. I always get nervous. How do you deal with that? You know, I I... I've learned that my best success always comes with trying to throw away the fear of failure. You know, when I put away all the negative thoughts in my head, 
and I know that that my success that day is not going to change who I am when I walk in that show pen and when I leave. And it enables me to give my best. You know, my wife it loves me the same no matter what. My family's going to be there, and you know, my faith is the same. So I'm the same person when I go in and when I come out. And of course, we want to be successful, and that's very important to us. However, it's not the most important thing, you know. And so I try to keep it in perspective. I can tell you many stories of times when I was very determined and very focused, and it didn't go well times when I was joking around before I went in and it went really well or you know it just depends on the horse and the circumstances how they warm up if they warm up really well it, it just depends it kind of puts you in a different frame of mind so yeah. it's not always the same but I'm in general I'm pretty laid back can you tell us about one of those times where you were super focused and determined and maybe it didn't go well when I won the derby on mobster um I had just come from the NRBC where I marked a 230 on Wimpy's Little Colonel. And so he was naturally my favorite to win the Derby. I thought I had a chance to win the Derby on him. I thought if I could get him shown, I was going to win the Derby because I thought I had the best, best capable horse for that opportunity. And so I showed Black Mamba was my first horse and um, he showed well, but he was a little bit younger and green and, you know, he just, he had a couple bobbles and I, it didn't, you know, ruin my day. Mm-hmm. but I put a lot of pressure on myself to win on Wimpy's Little Colonel and I went in there and I just tried to force it and I was serious I was very intense and I was trying to force it I made some bobbles he wasn't bad by any means he was still a 225 I think and he was good but I had an overturn and I had a bad rollback and just little things and I was trying to force it and I watched the video and I can just see where I was trying to make it happen and we did some really good stuff but it one thing I always tell people is that winning is not it's not your choice. Winning happens. And so I was really, really disappointed after I showed that horse and I went out to the warm up pen. I remember saying to Andrea, I was like, It is so hard to win. It's just so hard to win. My next horse was old mobster and I knew that he was definitely capable, but we had never made that kind of run before. And I think just being able to show freely enabled me to, to, to do really well on him. And he, he was, he was great. He was better than, than I anticipated. And so that's, I always say you can never underestimate the heart of a champion. It's, it's a quote from somebody else, obviously, but horses that, you know, it's their turn to win. They just, that's what is great about rain. It's not just about the person on their back. You know, it's not like we can't make them do it. They, that horse, he helped me out. Did you feel that walking in? Did he walk in and you, and you, you felt like he was just ready to rock and roll? Once I got through my turns, I knew, you know, I knew that we were in really good shape. I knew he, cause he turned, you know, it's basically as fast as you could turn to the right and shut off really good. And then he turned good to the left and I had had trouble getting him shut off, turned to the left. Once I got through that, I thought this horse is, is hooked up. He wants to, he wants to do good. <laughs> so when you won, what were you thinking? just you know overjoyed for the owner and for us too and just so thankful you know that he was able to do that that owner's heritage farms and uh, andy fishburn and his family they've been my customer for the longest time for anybody that i have and they have just been really really supportive and great to work for you talk about the most laid-back person in the world a guy that wants to win but he could not be nicer when I get done showing it, whether I win or I lose, he'll make fun of me or whatever. Mm-hmm. But 
you know, he's just, they're really, really nice people. And it makes, it makes all the difference in the world. So I really wanted to do good for them. I had bought some other horses for a lot of money and they were unsuccessful and we lost money on them and they were, you know, he trusted me to buy mobster and I was really excited that he came through for us. What was mobster like to train? He was really easy. You know, he, his big thing was he, he was so super, super sweet. He just never Mm -hmm. a horse that wanted to fight. He didn't carry his neck as low as some horses and not as soft as some horses, which ironically his colts are really low headed and really soft that I've had. So, you know, go figure. But he was just always willing to do whatever I wanted him to do. You know, what's cool about that horse is that in today's reigning, there's a lot of horses that can't run fast circles smoothly you know to do it really well there's few horses that can run the speed he can run it and he he felt the most comfortable going full speed he could go very very fast and he always wanted to be right where i wanted him to be he wasn't a horse that wanted to he handled i guess you'd say he got more focused when there was more on the line so it's yes that's a good kind of horse to show (laughs) that's interesting so when there's more on the line do you think he he feels it in you or what's the difference? I don't know. I think he, you know, he's a playful kind of horse a little bit. So he, I think going half speed kind of is maybe boring to him a little bit or something because, you know, he's a great athlete and just, uh, he just always was kind, really, really kind horse, never steady. Is that what you look for in studs? Do you find it to be consistent? No, I look, I'm more concerned about a horse that, you know, is willing to, to focus when it counts. There's, Mm -hmm. I've got horses in there that are not as sweet as he was, that are really great horses too. The cool thing about what we do is they all have different personalities. And so a a sweet one can be really successful and also a horse that is a little more difficult can be successful as well, as long as they're willing to focus when it counts or do their part when it counts. Can you tell us about a horse that was maybe difficult and came through in the end? You know, Mamba was pretty difficult for me. He was very vocal as far as being steady and stuff he liked to talk when he was at the horse show and not focus as much but he was a freak athlete he could stop unbelievable and he he turned well and and what was cool about that horse is that he showed incredible he was a great show horse and he was a horse that you could never have said this is going to be a great show horse when you're riding him at home you have no idea and when he walked in that show pen, he was a different horse. He was that way the whole time. I would liken him to a teenage boy who has a lot of talent and has you know a lot going on in his brain. He's thinking about other things too. But when it counted, he was he he did his job really well, and he's he's a good horse. So when you went and showed him for the first time, because he's different at home, and then he's just such a great show horse. Well, he just doesn't give you the feeling like he's paying attention, and so. I gave him some freedom and he, I let him kind of be himself a little bit. I didn't try to make him be something he wasn't, but I showed him at the summer slide in the first go and I won it. He just walked in there and was great right off the bat. So you, you walked in think you, did you walk in trusting him just to kind of see what he was going to do? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty trusting the closer to showing the better he got. It's like taking a, a kid to town, you know, there's a lot to look at. Some are shy, some are very vocal, and it's just our job is to try to get them to, to be prepared to show. Okay, next one, ARC gonna be a big star. Yeah, he's got a good story, that one does. He was hard for me to figure out, I guess you'd say, because he had great, great ability. He was so talented that it was hard to get it to be, you know, where I needed it to be with no penalties and all that stuff, you know, shutting off turns and things like that. But 
he when I got him, he'd come from Brent Lowski's and Brent had had him and did a nice job with him as a two year old. I thought, man, this horse is this is this one is the most talented horse I've ever had. But at the same time, he was kind of wiggly and a little bit playful mentally. And so I think like I did a video of him in March of his three year old year and he turned unbelievable. But it was hard for me to, same thing, hard for me to get it to where it was not just showable, but get it to where I had it consistent, I guess, would be the best thing. Because he always turned super fast, but just getting it solid, I think, was the hardest thing for me. I focused a lot on that, and he got to where he actually was, that was his best thing. And that was probably the most difficult thing for me to train him to do, was to turn in cadence, I guess you would say which he does really well now but but i think that horse what happened with him is about june i started thinking this horse has epm or something i don't know what's wrong with him he's losing weight and his hair looks bad and he's not he doesn't have epm you know he didn't have it and so i ended up taking him to dr easter in oklahoma on the way home from the derby and he said this horse has pneumonia and so he ended up having a month off after that he got healthy and so that was the year of the wag. I took Mobster the wag that year, so I was gone a little bit more. And so he was a little bit greener than I would have liked him to be just because of the setbacks that he had. So we went to the Congress and showed him, and, you know, he was pretty good. He turned, I think, a plus one and a half both ways in either of the go-rounds, but I had a big overturn on him in the finals, and he was scared to death of the crowd. At the Congress, when I loped him off, I mean, he didn't want any part of that crowd. Things are right down on top of you. The crowd is right on top of you. And he hadn't been shown very much. In fact, that was the first time I actually showed him. So he was a little bit insecure about it. And I was having a little bit of tr trouble getting him to run down the pin because all he wanted to do was stop. And he's a huge, huge stopper, but it took me some time to get him to run down the pin good. But from there... We went to the fraternity and just still not sure why he's not, you know, fatter and why, but he was sound. He was, you know, had energy and all that stuff and he was functioning well in every way like that. Well, anyway, long story short, throughout that horse show, I was struggling with getting him to run down the pin, down the arena freely. Because one thing about the reigning today is that we do a lot of making him soft and we do body control and we do all these things but sometimes they actually are maybe complicating things a little too much and I'll never forget it wasn't like he was being bad it's just that I was not able to get him to do what I wanted him to do and I couldn't figure out why like I was really struggling and I knew that he was capable of being great but I was just not getting it done you know I just was missing something and I walked in the barn six arena and there is Mike Flareda out there and Mike Flareda is a great great horseman he has been renowned for his rundowns he's a legend he's just a great horseman and I said Mike will you help me I need help and he said yeah you bet so he jumped on him and at first I thought uh, I don't know if this is a good idea <laughs> I wasn't too sure about it, but as the fraternity progressed and he helped me, he rode the horse twice, I think, and then he coached me while I was running him down, and he just gave me a couple little different things that I was not doing, and he mm -hmm. showed me when, when basically to use my leg and when not to use my leg and those types of things, and it was the difference maker, and I ended up winning the fraternity on him. Mike was Mike was huge, big part of it. But in the finals of the fraternity, he was like we were in our own little world on our own, you know. And and I didn't even hear the crowd. I mean, when I got done turning, 
I was overcome with emotion because I could just feel that, you know, this was happening and it wasn't something I was making happen. You know, it was, mm-hmm. this horse was a great horse and he was stepping up. At that fraternity, I had another horse called Electric Snow who was an amazing talent and he's, he's a great horse as well. And he was really good in the go-rounds and a horse that I didn't, I didn't have any trouble really with any of the maneuvers on him. He was doing really well and he rode really well the morning of the finals. Same thing. I thought that horse had a chance to win the fraternity. I thought he was, you know, in my mind going into the finals, I had the last draw on Big Star, but I thought that Electric Snow, you know, at the time was probably my best shot at winning, you know, just because of the way he was riding. I showed him and I, he just barely stepped out of lead for, I mean, just one stride, went slowing down to the right and I had an overturn on him and he marked a 22 and a half, I think. So with his penalties, he, he would have won the fraternity, but he did not because, you know, we had penalties and it just, we had bobbles. And I was sick and I was upset and I was angry. It would be remiss for me not to talk about my faith a little bit. You know, I'm a Christian and I believe that God has a purpose for my life. And part of that is showing horses to use that to glorify him. And I was upset and I felt like was aggravated and I was really sick. My wife had won the fraternity in the level three the night before and it was great. Well, we were just exhausted and I'll try to get through this without crying because there's a lot to this story. But before I showed Big Star, I had him in the cross ties there and um, we were getting ready to show Dale Harvey, who is a great guy, but he's a a very godly man. He said, um, guys care if I pray with you before you show? And I said, yeah, sure, whatever, if you want to pray. I had a bad attitude about it. He just said, I felt like I needed to come pray with you. I was headed to Casey Deary's stalls, but I just decided to come back over here and I want to pray with you. So I said, okay. And he prayed with us, and um, he went on to show amazing. It wasn't that I didn't think he was capable of it, but I didn't think we were ready. It wasn't really about winning as much as it was about realizing that all these things that I had in my head that needed to happen that I was trying to take all the control away from just trusting that God had a plan and that whatever happened happened so anyways that happened with Dale and then of course you know Dale and I are very close and then we lost him last year in a car wreck so talking about it makes me really you know upset because just incredible you know influence that he was on me and uh so just when we talk about him, it's sad just because, you know, we lost him last year. So. Yeah. That's an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to ask you about is that some of these great horses you've ridden, Spooks Got a Wiz, HF Mobster, and AR Gonna Be a Big Star, kind of all come back to a single bloodline of Katie Gunn. Yeah. In the reigning industry, we're all familiar with Katie Gunn, you know, and, right. and the amazing bloodlines there. Are there consistencies? I think in her family, you know, we also have some out of Snipple Gun who's related as well. And I think that those horses are just, they're good, they're good horses. They are honest, they're honest about who they are. You know, they don't promise you one thing and then go in the show pen and be another. You know, there's horses that are great talents in the warm-up pen, but to go in the horse show pen and at least be who they are in the warm-up pen, in the show pen, that, that's a, I think that comes, it's got to come from her somewhat. And of course, mixed in there with the Hollywood Dunnett and all those other, you know, great yeah. families. But I think that she produces that. So it may be one of these horses that we've already talked about, but what's a horse that 
has really left his mark on you. A memorable affair was the first horse I ever made to open finals of any major event on. And she was a great, great stopper. But another horse that kind of came along a little later was Lena Gallo. And um, he's a horse that had been shown by Brent Wright and Todd Crawford previously before me. And at the end of his career with Todd, he looked like he wasn't really wanting to, you know, be a good reigning horse anymore. He was taking off around the ends and stuff. And Todd won a lot on him. He was a great horse. Mm -hmm. But I got that horse. They called me and he came in and his tail was chewed off above his hocks. They pasture bred him and he looked like a ranch horse when I got him. I thought, oh man, this isn't going to last long. <laughs> and he was furry and just, you know, but that horse, oh, man, he's a cool horse. He was a great horse. He could turn stop so physical. But anyways, I ended up showing him and I think I won or second pretty much every time I showed him and he ended up taking us to Italy and uh, we, my wife and I got married in 2007 and this, I was showing him in 2008 and they came and did a little AQHA, did a little deal, you know, on us. She was pregnant at the time when we went to Italy for the, it was the FEI world championships at the time. And I was the lowest guy on the food chain as far as going to this, you know, I was on the U S team to represent the United States. We were going to Minervio, Italy. And so Craig Schmersel was on the team, Tom McCutcheon, and Pete Kyle, and myself. So it was pretty cool to be on the team with Pete. But we take this horse over there. I had a lot of faith in him, but he, he was a horse that it took a little bit of work to get him prepared as far as just getting him to where he was focused in and relaxed and stuff. So anyway, I show him in the first go, and the light coming in the end of the arena was so bright, it was all glass wall, and we had to run in and stop. I couldn't even see to the middle. He wasn't his best. He was like a 220, and I made, you know, we ended up the first team to ever not win gold. We were silver, unfortunately, to the Italians. And so we were all really disappointed after that. I was pretty down about it. And uh, I went and, you know, I was kind of complaining to my wife, and, you know, she's just, she's always... I talk about her, I get a little bit emotional too, but she's always been there to put me where I need to be, whether it's build me up or put me in my place, you know, remind me that, that I'm, you know, need to make sure that, you know, I still, it, it, she's just, she's pretty much, if I've ever won anything successfully, she's, she's been just as much a part of that as I am at that time. My confidence wasn't very good, and she told me that I needed to trust my horse, that I needed to just have some faith that it was going to be okay and mm -hmm. stop having a bad attitude. But he, I took him in there, did a paid warm-up on him at 2.30 in the morning that day, and they were cleaning the stands with black plastic bags, and I couldn't get him to the middle. I couldn't get him to the middle of the arena to do my paid warm-up. He wouldn't walk to the middle. He's a rooster stud, and he was scared to death. I was just bewildered. I was trying to do a paid warm up because I had stuff I needed to work on, you know, and I, I couldn't do it. I had to walk out. I had to leave. I never did get him. He tried to turn tail and run. And this is an eight year old horse that had been all over the country. So anyway, I go out and I, I rode him and I went back and I told my wife, I said, I don't think he is. I'm just going to school him because I've got, a, we had another rain in the next week and I, it was a lot of money. And, and I, and she, she got, man, she got mad at me. And she said, you came all this way and you're going to show that horse and you're going to, you're going to do good. I showed him and I won <laughs> and, uh, he was incredible. He was incredible. It, it was the first really big win and our chases were there presenting the awards, you know, so it was a really, really big deal for us. And, um, to be able to share that with her 
and we were about to have our first child. It was a really special thing. It was a great memory. But that horse, he brought me other horses. That run and that showing year brought me good horses. He helped me so much. I don't think I would have been nearly as successful without her there to just to be encouraging, I think, mostly. He sounds like you have an amazing wife. I have an amazing wife. Yeah. She always believes the best about me, even when it, it may be not true. But she just is always, that's what she's going to do because she, you know, because she loves me. But she's, it's a shame that, you know, wives don't get any more recognition than they do because we all have the opportunity to enjoy success that, that they sacrifice so much for us to enjoy, especially with our families and stuff. So she's, yeah, she's pretty awesome. Can you give us non-pros some advice on how to trust your horse in the show pen? Yeah, I think that being prepared, you know, you got to be prepared. If you've got a basketball player who never makes three-point shots, but they're great at layups, you don't go in the show pen and try to make a three-point shot. You've got to know what you have. You've got to know what you're capable of and prepared to do. And then you have to, you have to trust that that is going to happen, you know, if you do your part. And if it doesn't happen, you can't let it ruin the rest of the pattern. If they jump out of the first turn, be able to just stick with it and keep showing, you know, I think is a big thing. But being prepared is my biggest asset. If I'm not prepared, it's not going to happen when I get in the show pen. And then if for some reason my horse is having trouble with something, I need to be aware of that and be able to to make adjustments accordingly. I think showing what you have and trusting that they are going to do what, what they you know are capable of gives you the best opportunity to succeed. What would you say your specialty is? What's your trainer superpower? <laughs> I think that adapting to every, you know, to different horses is probably my best asset is that I'm able to, I can show a horse that's stiff and has its head up or I can show a horse that's soft and wiggly or a hot one or a lazy one that doesn't really bother me. I don't, you know, I have preferences, but if they can do their job, I can I can adapt and ride them accordingly. And I think that that's probably the, my best asset. It's a really good specialty to have. I think <laughs> we're all all looking to understand our our horses. Right. We're coming down on time here, but I have a few more questions for you. Okay. What's the the best advice you've ever been given as a horseman? The best advice. One thing that sticks out in my mind is that I read an article a long time ago and that in order to be successful in the horse business, you've got to be tough as nails and an eternal optimist. (laughs) And I think that that's true. And I think that that's something that I try to be. I try to be optimistic. You know, it's there's a lot of things that can go wrong with horses. Just trying to be optimistic, I think, is a big thing. And then also Mike Flaherty said a long time ago that being a successful horse trainer is there's three different parts there's the great horseman and you have to be a great horse trainer and then you got to be a showman and trying to work on those three things you can't do one without the other you have any superstitions when you're getting ready to show superstitions i don't really have any superstitions in particular i have favorite pads and shirts that i've had success in or whatever but i don't think that that's what makes me successful or not successful for sure you know, I used to be funny about what number I got and all that kind of things. But, I, you know, I didn't want to draw 208. I didn't like that number or 209, anything with 20 in it. I didn't like. But, no, I'm not superstitious. I just, as I've grown as a person, I understand, you know, where my strength comes from better than, than I did when I was younger. I think. Any advice at all that you would give to an amateur or non-pro just looking to becoming a better horse person? Make it fun. If it's not fun then what are you doing it for? I do this because I enjoy it. I love it. I, I, I love a lot of different parts of it, not just the success or failure. 
I think if you do it because you love it and you have a desire to get better, then you can enjoy it. But if you're just concerned about success or failure, it just won't ever satisfy you. Cool. Well, thanks for being with us. We can learn more about you on your Facebook page, Larson Performance Horses, and your website, LarsonPerformanceHorses.com. You have a video series coming out this summer. Yeah. And so we'll be watching out for that. Anything else? I think that's it. Those are all the places. Great. Yeah. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs>